Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Erica Slater, and I'm joined today by Elizabeth McNulty, Megan Crow, Liz Lenevy, and Amy Gunn. And today we are talking about a topic that we sincerely hope most of you don't know about or have only been adjacent to. Getting sued or lawyers having to sue lawyers for malpractice. Recently, I learned that the defense counsel in a case that John and I tried in 2018 was sued. And the theory being that because of the way they defended the case, they paid us too much when they settled it in the middle of trial, (laughs) which was an interesting uh, feeling because I wanted to say like, well, no, certainly you didn't pay us too much. It was all our expert legal decisions and the way we tried the case that got it resolved in the middle of trial. But this case in particular, the defense counsel that had been defending the case throughout the litigation um, was fired two weeks before trial. And the new counsel went to the court asking for a continuance based on that. And the previous counsel, because they had been asking the court for some things that they weren't getting and were out of time on some things that they wanted to do, had already asked to continue the trial a couple times, and the court had denied that. And I think the court at this point was just seeing the fact that the defendant company released their counsel as another bite at the apple of potentially continuing the case. It was a really, really serious motorcycle accident Our client was 16 when he got in this accident with a big corporation whose delivery van cut him off. He had a portion of his skull removed so his brain could swell down back into the area of his skull. And then they replaced it three months later. I mean, it just, you know, catastrophic injuries. A lot was at stake. And they didn't really have any medical expert testimony on the defense side. They asked for extra time several times to name medical experts, and they just didn't. But the point is, is that we resolved that case in the middle of our case in chief, right before our client went on, actually. Now, several years later, the defendant corporation who we were suing has sued that previous defense counsel. So I can see all the filings. And the really interesting thing that has happened is In discovery, um, they've exchanged a lot of the file of the defense firm who I was litigating the case against, and they've attached a lot of these emails and things like that to motions. And so my emails with opposing counsel are like all attached to these motions. And now I have their internal emails between themselves. I don't think anything's talking (laughs) about us or about me, but it's been a very odd experience to go through and get access to some of those documents. And quite frankly, I remember that case specifically teaching me a lot about how to deal with opposing counsel because the counsel who we were working with for the majority of the case was really difficult. Like I'd give him an extension on something and, you know, usually you just have a professional agreement. You know, you've kind of done your job to put it in writing if you email someone and say, you know, per our discussion, we'll receive your discovery responses by X, Y, and Z. In that case in particular, I started filing docket memos with the court saying plaintiffs have agreed to extend defendant's discovery deadline to this date because I was having trouble getting things back. So it's interesting to look at all of our correspondence at that time and see how 
that's kind of changed and have that weird feeling of, you know, your exchanges being scrutinized by now outside firms who are defending and prosecuting the legal malpractice case. So I guess that is a good reminder in the background to, you know, we never want it to happen. We never want our work, our own work to be questioned. But if malpractice litigation ever comes out of your actual litigation, then your case file, your emails back and forth, sometimes, at least in this firm's case, their internal emails between each other, that's all discoverable. So it's a good reminder to everything you put in writing can come back and be exhibits to motions (laughs) later on down the road. Amy, I know that you have had not the pleasant experience of being involved in litigation like this. Well, so I was sued personally and individually, but not by a client. So I'm very proud of that fact that 25 years later, I've never been sued by a client. And to my knowledge, I've never even had any complaints, ethical um, or otherwise, filed against me. But let's go back in time. About 15 years ago, I was involved in a lawsuit where we represented two individuals who had been killed in a fireworks explosion. There were five people total who were professional firework folks who were in Florida getting ready to set up a fireworks display for a county in Florida. So it was one of these big county fireworks displays for the 4th of July. And as this group of people was unloading the tractor trailer of the boxes full of firework shells, one exploded and the whole thing went up. And my two clients, their sons were killed, their adult sons, as were a few other folks. I had two of the decedents. Another lawyer had someone else. Another lawyer had a decedent and someone who was injured. So there are basically three plaintiff's attorneys for the five injured and deceased. Maybe there were six people. So litigation pursues. We sued the distributor and the retailer of the fireworks, which was a Missouri corporation, which is kind of how we got involved, even though it happened in Florida. And based on our investigation, we also sued the manufacturer of what's known as an e-match or an electric match. So it used to be that there were long fuses to these fireworks that would get lit from a far distance and they would burn and shoot off the fireworks. More recently, it is all electronic. So from a control panel, the operator can push buttons, ignite the electric match, set off the black powder, and voila, you have fireworks display. So something in the packaging, the arranging, we believe it's impossible to know because this destruction was so immense of this area and all the fireworks but it was believed that this e-match was defective in addition to the way it was packaged and arranged within the tractor trailer. The company that was in charge of packaging and distributing had paid their money. So we, were, we pursued the case against the manufacturer of this e-match, which was a French company. So it was kind of fun. The litigation was kind of fun because I got to go to Paris twice to take <laughs> corporate representative depositions of this company. But about six months before trial, I had seen that another law firm in Louisiana had had a verdict or a settlement of a fireworks case 
and they had sued the same defendant, this French manufacturing company. So as is often the case with plaintiff's works, we're usually very friendly with each other. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And to the extent that we're able to share information, we do. At least that's the policy of this firm. I contacted the lawyer who had advertised essentially this verdict or settlement, I can't remember which one it was, to see if he was interested in talking about the case. Because when someone calls me and says, can I talk about a similar case, to the extent that I'm able to, of course I do. So he invites us, the three plaintiff's firms, to New Orleans to chat. And so I think, well, you know, okay, he kind of makes it sound like we can talk about it, but it's better to do it in person. And I've got lots of documents that I can share. So just come on down. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that sounds like it could be helpful. So I confer with the other plaintiff's firms. Everyone's on board. We go to New Orleans and this lawyer says, I'll send my car to pick you up. So he sends a Volvo limo to pick us up. <laughs> Just in case you can't tell, this is not a good memory for me. But <laughs> the details, as is oftentimes in your life when you have traumatic things happen to you, you remember these crazy details. Sends a Volvo limo to pick us up. And there's four of us, four lawyers. We get in the limo. He's going to take us to this lawyer's office. The driver of the limo is up front and he has his phone. The phone rings. I hear him pick up the phone and the driver says, oh, okay, great. We're just passing exit 213. You know, see you soon. I'm thinking that's interesting. And within, I don't know, a minute to two minutes, this red Ferrari comes charging up beside us. And I'm like, what is this all about? We have a couple of male lawyers in the car with us, and they're like, whoa, how cool is that? And the two female lawyers, we look at each other and roll our eyes. But, you know, the driver says, oh, that's Howard. And that's not his real name, but that's Howard. And again, the ladies are rolling their eyes. The boys are salivating. So he zooms past us and, you know, parks his car in front of the office. We come in. And we still wait 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, maybe it's just me, but I'm not, not really loving this scenario. We are invited up. And now he starts this, well, look, there's a protective order in the case that I had. So unless you agree to sign me on as co-counsel, I can't share anything with you, which was a bait and switch, clearly. And, you know, bad on me for not sussing it out better and not realizing where we were going with this. But at that moment, I was like, all right, we're done, right? But I'm also, I don't want to be rude, so I don't walk out. And I have other people there who are mildly interested in the idea. But I knew that we didn't need him. I knew that we were almost done with the case. It was only six months from trial. I knew we probably had the same documents that he did. So we spend the day, we don't look at any documents, we chit-chat about nonsense, and get back to St. Louis, and within a month or two, I get a disc in the mail from Howard. And in the meantime, one of the three law firms has hired him on as co-counsel. So they have agreed to share their fee, and under the terms, I guess, of the protective order, it was okay to share those documents. 
then I get the disc. And again, I'm kind of suspicious. Again, it feels a little bit like I'm being baited here. I do nothing with the disc. I do nothing with the disc. Fast forward, we finished Discovery. It is December of 2007, a week before Christmas. I get sued, along with John Simon and the Simon Law Firm. I'm being sued by Howard and his firm, I guess, for interference with the business relationship or some kind of tortious business. Tor- yes, that's it. Tortious thing. It's all based on this idea that he gave me documents and I have refused to share a fee. Now, mind you, there's no money. We haven't tried the case yet. The settlement with the distributor preceded this whole thing, but our case was set for trial in January of 2008. So he was just setting the stage for what he perceived to be a pretty good likelihood we were going to win. So I don't know, y'all, how anybody else would have handled it, but I probably handled it pretty poorly, which was to internalize the hell out of it, ruin my Christmas, continue to worry about it until we lost the case. And then continued to feel bad about it because I was so glad that at least I believed Howard was going to drop his lawsuit because there was nothing to get. 10% of zero is zero. (laughs) So at any rate, I will say what I learned from that experience is, I hate to say it, but don't trust anybody (laughs) that you don't have a reason to trust. Don't give people the benefit of the doubt, which I have tempered that over the years. And it's not fair for one situation to guide you through the rest of your life. But I also learned that John Simon is one of the most loyal people on earth. And I love him for that because the minute that he and I both got sued, there was never a doubt, at least not to my face, (laughs) that this was BS and we were going to fight it. So the takeaway is surround yourself with people that you trust and that you are loyal to and they are loyal to you because when the chips are down, that shit matters. The other thing, of course, is be careful who you do business with. I have said before, maybe on this podcast, that as the years have gone by in my practice, my walls have gone up and my defenses have gone up. And it's not in small part due to things like this that happen to you. But I also, at the time, had kind of convinced myself that when you play in the big leagues, the stakes are higher. I kind of comforted myself a little bit, like my goal is to play in the big leagues. And sometimes things like this are part of, unfortunately, I think part of playing in the big leagues, because if this were a small case that wasn't worth fighting over, I never would have been sued by Howard. So that is my I got sued story. So, Amy, to continue with the baseball metaphors, did he drop his case against you or did you go up to bat? Well, he dropped it because there was nothing. I mean, I guess you could technically still argue that there was a tortious interference with a business relationship, but the damages were zero because we lost the case. We definitely would have gone to bat had we won the case. And I'm certain it would have taken an even higher emotional toll to have gone through that litigation, which also taught me a lot about what our clients go through. Mm -hmm. You're all nodding because you knew what I was getting ready to say. It did teach me a lot, not only our clients, but also the defendants. I got to tell you, 
we don't take lightly suing people because we know what it means, whether it's firsthand or secondhand, we know what it means. Amy, thank you for sharing that story. I know that it's not exactly your favorite topic, but hey, you know, what have we always said? The worst days make great stories. Yes. 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 This counts. Yes. And this is no exception. Anyone else ever had any experience working on legal malpractice cases? I'm happy to not have any other stories in in this room of people getting sued, but I had um, a case that I worked on that was actually a legal malpractice case when I was at my old firm. So we were actually defending a legal malpractice action. And, you know, I was a brand new attorney, so I didn't do too much with it. I did a lot of document review and looking through all the discovery in this case. And with legal malpractice cases, there is a lot of discovery because on top of the discovery that you do as part of a a normal um, civil negligence claim case, Part of that discovery is the entire underlying legal file. And so that's like double the amount of documents that you're looking through. So it can be pretty tedious to look through all that stuff. But just like Erica said, the importance of what you say in your emails is definitely highlighted because you're looking through these emails internally and with opposing counsel and all the dirty laundry is brought to light, so to speak. And the things people put in their emails internally that are case related is just nutso. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And the other thing that stood out to me about working on a legal malpractice case is that it really takes a lot of time and effort because you not only have to know the negligence part, because legal malpractice is essentially just a plain negligence claim, but you have to essentially understand the underlying claim behind it too. Um, So in this instance that I was working on, it was a divorce case. And part of uh, winning a legal malpractice case is saying, but for this action, the outcome would have been different. So we not only had to know the legal malpractice law, but also had to become a basically a family law expert and realize, okay, if we were trying this case initially as a family law attorney, this is what we would have to do. This is how it would have to turn out. So it really, it's a lot of time and dedication to work on these claims, but it teaches you a lot. I had never worked with family law before, but I had to understand how to win this family law case and defend in this particular case. We were defending the attorney getting sued and and showing that if he had done what they said they should have done, the outcome would have been the same. So it's kind of like lawsuit inception. Yeah, because I feel like all of our like mal cases, you have to learn like a new surgery or a new you know product if you're filing a product liability case. But here you have to learn an entire new area of law. You know, guys, every time I talk to a doctor friend of mine or a medical professional and they ask what I do and find out I do medical malpractice, if they want to talk about that, we usually come to the agreement at the end of that conversation that they know there are bad doctors out there and that the driving force behind changing their practice is litigation sometimes. And I always agree that we know that legal malpractice happens, obviously not in our situation here with our firm, but (laughs) we can rise above and understand that it happens and that there are ethical implications to especially watchdogging for clients and making sure clients are not affected by bad legal representation. We just never want to be involved if we don't have to. Well, everyone, thank you for listening today. I hope you have learned something from our stories and maybe some watch outs or found some camaraderie in sharing our war stories. New episodes of Heels in the Courtroom drop on Wednesdays. Join us next time. Thanks. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, 
Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today.